Good morning. Is anybody here like waiting? No, nobody. Nobody likes waiting. Did you know that the statistics show that an average person waits for something an hour a day? Like you're you're waiting on something for a cumulative total of an hour a day. I mean, think about it. what do we wait for? We wait at a red light when we're driving or we wait in line at the grocery store or uh, we wait in the incredibly long line at Starbucks, some of us. Uh, we wait for food at a restaurant. Sometimes you even have to be waited to get seated to wait for the food. Or you wait for your computer to load. Or if you work here, you wait for the internet to actually work. I mean, seriously, it takes me back to the days of dial-up working here. We even have rooms dedicated to waiting with terrible magazines in them. I don't understand it. So if we're waiting for roughly an hour a day or so, in the course of 70 years, we will have spent three of those years waiting for something. I'm sure that makes everybody feel good. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure we are all calm, patient people while we wait, right? <laughs> I'm sure that, for instance, if you're waiting at a traffic light, like, Say you're trying to turn left onto Kenzer Pike off of 46, and you know that that light goes quick, and it only lets like a car and a half through before you can turn. And you're like that third car, and that first car doesn't see that it turned green. And so you know that you're not going to make it, and you get up there, and you don't. And then you have to wait even longer. Now, I'm sure that you're all... All calm and serene when that happens, right? I, I know, I know, I am. Uh, actually, I really like. I'm just putting my head in my hands and lamenting that I did not make it. Now I've got to wait even more. Waiting is hard. Could be waiting for uh, you know harvest dinner, which is right after this service. And you're wondering, Nick, stop talking about waiting. Let's go. We could eat sooner. We'll get there. It does lead us down to a bad path of impatience or frustration or selfishness sometimes. And, and, but what we talk about here, you know, the, all of these examples, they're just temporary kinds of waiting. We're, we're not waiting a super long time for these, or hopefully you're not. But what about things that you might be waiting on for a long time? Like, what about things that seem, you know, we seem to be waiting our whole lives for these. Today, we're going to look at one of the most important things that we're waiting on, and and what we can do while we're waiting. Now, we've been in this short three-week series in the letter of Second Peter. And in this letter, one of Jesus' earliest followers, Peter, has been focused on how we, as Christians, can live godly lives. Today, we're going to look at the final chapter where Peter speaks to our waiting, waiting on Christ's return, waiting on the day of the Lord to come, and how, while we're waiting, we can live godly lives as well. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to 2 Peter chapter 3, and uh, we'll start in verse 1. Peter writes, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
So Peter begins his final section by telling his readers why he wrote the letter as well as the first letter that he wrote to them. The NIV translates this first part. He addresses them as dear friends, but I don't think that is necessarily the best translation for that. And the reason I say that is because if you remember during the first week where we were comparing two different kinds of love, we compared um, the Philadelphia, the brotherly love, to agape, godly love. And what is translated, the, the root of the word that's translated as dear friends is, is the same word as the godly love. It's the agape love. Other translations, I think, have maybe better translated this as beloved. And I think it's important to show that Peter loved his readers in the same way that he was talking about back in chapter 1 with this godly love and that they are beloved by God, recipients of his saving grace. Now, the reason that Peter wrote this letter was to stimulate them to wholesome thinking by remembering He wanted them to remember the words of the past written by the holy prophets. Now, like we talked about last week, Peter wants them to remember the things that were written by the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophets were writing about the future king of Israel, the one who would rescue them from destruction, the Messiah. He also wants them to remember the teaching by the apostles about Jesus, whom the Old Testament prophets were pointing to as the Messiah. And again, this ties into what we talked about last week with the end of chapter 1. These two, the scriptures and the apostles' witness, they're so important for his readers that, that Peter wants to continually remind them of what they teach over and over while he can. If you remember, we talked about him uh, you know, knowing that his life on earth was about to end. And he's, he's focused on wanting to remind them of these teachings. But then he moves on to another issue that he warns his readers to take care against. And this comes following his description of the judgment coming against the false teachers in chapter 2. So in verse 3, he says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter's warning his readers that in the last days, scoffers will come. What do scoffers do? They scoff, which just means that they speak to someone or uh, speak to someone or about something in a scornfully derisive or mocking way. That's how the dictionary defines it. So the scoffers that Peter warns about, he says that they will come in these last days, and they're basically going to say, you know, where is this coming of Jesus that you've been promised? I don't see it. You say he's coming, but everything keeps going on the same way as it always has. And this must have been an argument that Peter had experienced. It's possible it came from Jewish believers who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Ultimately, though, whoever it comes from, they are denying the belief that Jesus would indeed come back and take up his reign. Their argument lies in what they can see. 
what they, perce- they, they perceive that the world is just continuing on as it always has since the beginning of creation. Now, Peter responds to this argument in a couple of ways. And the first is he looks back to the creation account. And he says, look, these people forget that it was by God's word that this creation came into being. In Genesis 1, you see the author continually tell of God creating the things in the universe by using the phrase, and God said, and God said, let there be light, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and God said, let the land produce vegetation, and so on. The scoffers would deliberately forget that it was by God's word all of these things came into being, including the earth being formed out of the water, by the water, as it says. And then he points to how the same water was used to deluge and destroy the world of that time. Genesis chapter 6, the world became so overcome with the wickedness because of humans that in Genesis 6, 5, God says that, or the, the scriptures say, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. And God's decision because of this was to destroy the world through a flood. In the same way, Peter writes, the current heavens and earth will also be destroyed by God's word. It is in that day of judgment that the ungodly will also be destroyed. In these statements, we see Peter's argument that the world does not continue as it has since the beginning of creation. These scoffers could say that the, could, they, they could not say that the world has been marked by regularity when a flood destroyed human beings, as one author puts it. They, they also can't really say that, that it will uh, continue on when there are scriptures that also point to the heavens and earth being reserved for fire on the day of judgment. Like, that's not the normal mode of operations for things. These people, they only see things from their perspective, and that perspective is so myopic. It is so nearsighted. They, they don't see past what they can themselves really understand or perceive. And Peter's warning, we still see it today, although the arguments might have become a little bit more sophisticated, or maybe they're just a little bit different, because then they're likely people would have believed in some sort of deity, regardless of where they lived. It just might not have been the God of the Bible. Today, however, there are many quote-unquote scoffers who don't believe in any deity, and, and they still scoff at the beliefs of Christians and, and really anybody who believes in anything, something greater than this world itself. And a one-time famed uh, atheist, Richard Dawkins, once said that atheists should, when speaking to believers, mock them, ridicule them in public with contempt. But Peter's written to us so that we can be prepared for this. And as Christians, we, we are prepared because we know that the Lord has promised to return. We know that there is more in eternity with him. And we know that God is going to judge the ungodly. Now, what we don't know is when these things will happen. And Peter speaks to that here in the next part of the passage. Verse 8 do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. In my office upstairs, I have a framed print of something that I like to be reminded of every once in a while. And it it's just says simply on it, slow and steady wins. A little picture of a little turtle on there. Slow and steady wins. You may remember the Aesop fable of the tortoise and the hare. And just in case you don't know it, here's the basic story. You've got this hare, and he's mocking the tortoise for his speed, his super slow tortoise. And so the tortoise challenges the hare to a race. The hare leaves the tortoise, you know, just dusts him, leaves him behind. But about halfway through the race, in his overconfidence, he decides to take a nap, thinking that's a good idea. And then he wakes up only to find that the tortoise had already crossed the finish line first. The hare was so overconfident that he would win that he, he let that get to him while the tortoise just continued on, slow and steady. And I think that's the way we need to approach the Christian life, slow and steady. And we do this for a couple of reasons. First, while Peter talks about the future destructions of the heavens and the earth, you know, we don't really know when that's going to happen. Christians have... A, thought that we were in what have been called the last days for about 2,000 years. Now, we can either take that, we get frustrated by it, we can try to make things happen, or we can continually try to figure out when the last days are coming, and some do try that, but in the end, really what we need to do is simply continue to live faithful lives, awaiting his coming expectantly. Trying to figure out exactly when this will come is useless. Peter says that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. A thief doesn't really make a grand announcement when they're going to come and rob you. And if they do, they're either really good or really, really bad. And my money's on the latter of those. Jesus even spoke about this in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 12, verse 39, he says, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming... He would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So the first reason for a slow and steady approach to the Christian life is that, that we just don't know when the day of the Lord is, and so we should always be ready, just continually, day after day, living the godly life. The second reason is that it's kind of how God appears to work. Peter writes that the Lord is patient, and what seems to be a thousand years for us is like a day to the Lord. It's a matter of perspective. Like, think about it if you were taking a whitewater rafting trip in the mountains. You know, you get, you get focused on the parts of the river that you are experiencing right then, especially if you're in the rapids. You're not too worried about what's coming yet, because you've got to focus on what you're in at that time. It can be tough to think about anything else. You don't worry about what's coming around the bend or down even a few miles downriver. But what if, instead of being on the river, you picture yourself on one of the mountains and, and you can see the river below? You, you, these mountains are high enough. You can see the entire river. You can see the twists and turns and bends. You know where the river starts, where it ends. That's how one writer described God's perspective. He sees the whole picture of the river from start to finish, the whole picture of life. Like Peter says, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. He is, 
He's the creator of what we experience as time. He's outside of it. He's able to see the whole picture. Now, why does that matter? Well, it means that he's not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient, patient with his people. Well, why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He, he, he wants everyone to come to repentance. And the Lord is patient because he wants all to make that decision to repent and follow him. And to me, this should show us that God is not some kind of far-off tyrant that, that enjoys seeing pain and suffering in this world. His desire is for all of creation to come to him, and so he delays coming back. We should adopt the same attitude. God is patient with people, and I, for one, thank him for that. Uh, we should be patient with those people as well. God desires to see them come to him. We should as well. Never should we give up hope for those who are far from the Lord. Never should we stop praying for them. Never should we stop telling them of the hope that we've found in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from the 1800s, he's quoted as saying, it's one of my favorite quotes from him. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap, over, leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. The Lord is patient, but one day, the day of the Lord will come. We don't know when this will happen. And on that day, Peter writes, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire in the earth, and everything done in it will be laid bare. Peter then continues in verse 11, where he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote, wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. To their own destruction. Peter starts this conclusion to his letter by saying, since the destruction of everything is coming, as the day of the Lord approaches, what kind of people should we be? As believers, as followers of Christ, what kind of people should we be? Very simply, he answers, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Live lives that are set apart from this world. Live godly lives, lives that are distinctive as, as we seek to become more like Jesus. And we look forward to the day of the Lord. And speed, it's coming. Peter teaches that the day of the Lord could be hastened as believers change by their holy and godly lives. I mean, we pray for that. Think about the Lord's prayer where he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then what is it? 
your kingdom come. We're praying for this day to come sooner. We tell more people about Jesus. We live these godly lives. We set apart their lives, and we hope to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. And what happens on that day? The destruction that we've talked about already, the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But then there is more because we look forward not to the destruction, but to a new heavens and a new earth where he says righteousness dwells. It's a couple of different ways people over time have looked at what will happen in the future. Some believe that it will be a total annihilation. Everything will be just absolutely and utterly destroyed, the current world, this universe, and, and God will replace that with a new heaven and a new earth. Others believe that what will happen is that God will purify the old world and create out of the same elements a new one. That's how one writer puts it. But what's most important, though, is that this world will indeed be new, whether created out of the old or something completely new. In this new heavens and earth, righteousness dwells, and that is God's righteousness. The followers of Jesus will have been transformed by God himself through his grace. 2 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4 talk about that. It says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Our ability to live the godly life, to live in righteousness, is given to us by God through his power. And so we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, and since we're looking forward to it, we need to make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. And this, again, points back to chapter 1, where Peter wrote in verses 5 through 7. It says, for this very reason, we make every effort to add, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Make every effort to live out your life with the characteristics of the godly life fully relying on God as we go. Remember, we are unable to really do this on our own, but we can with him. And we seek to be spotless and blameless, unlike the false teachers who were described as blots and blemishes by Peter in chapter 2. Peter then gives us a warning where he writes for his readers to bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. And this echoes the earlier passage about the Lord not being slow in his promises. But the veiled warning here is that God's patience means salvation, but it doesn't mean the ability to do whatever you want to do while we wait the Lord's coming. Peter uses an example here from Paul's letters to help flesh this out. Some of these teachers likely took some of Paul's statements about freedom from the law, and, and they were promoting a belief that you were able to pretty much do anything you wanted because you were free from the law. And that's what Peter's probably referring to when he says that Paul's letters contain things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. 
saying that's not, it's not giving you that license to just do what you want. You still have to follow God and build the godly life. Peter concludes his letter with a final warning for his readers, but also a final encouragement. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. In his final warning, Peter tells them again, be on guard against the false teachers who would lead you astray from your faith. And then he tells them, grow in the grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It pretty much encapsulates the whole letter. Watch out for the false teachers, but continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, living the godly life while we await the Son's return. He is our Lord and Savior, saving us from the coming destruction of this world, saving us from the ungodly. We who were sinners, separated from God, brought near through the cross of Jesus. He took our sins to that cross. He bore them on himself as the perfect sacrifice so that we may be saved, the Lamb of God. And the offer remains there for you to join him. The Lord is patient. He's not slow. And his patience means salvation. He wants all to come home to him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But one day, though, that day will come when the Lord will return. The old will be gone. And a new heavens and a new earth will replace it. If you've not made a decision to follow Jesus, don't wait. It will be too late someday. Don't wait for that day. If this is something you've been thinking about, I pray that you make the decision to follow him. But for those of us that have, we need to just keep living the godly life, slow and steady as we wait. Probably for the one thing that is worth waiting for. We look forward to that day when the Lord returns, and let's speed that along. We pray for it. The Apostle John wrote the very end of the Bible, last verses of the book of Revelation. He writes this. He says, He, Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, Yes, I am coming soon. Then John concludes saying, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you pray with us as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is my prayer. You've told us that you are coming soon, and while soon may not be the same as what we think it is, we do know that you will be coming because you keep your promises. And Lord, My prayer is the same as John's. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We await that day expectantly. Not the one good thing to wait on. But we do do hope that it comes soon. 
Father, Lord, it is only through the sacrifice of your Son, from his life, his death, and his resurrection, conquering death, taking our sins to the cross, though, and paying for them with his blood. That is how we can come before you today. That is how we come before you anytime. And Father, we thank you for that. That amazing gift that you've given us. We can't, we can't earn it. We, we can't pay for it. That is just something that you have provided. Because we needed it. So, Lord, today I pray that if there are those here that, that have heard these words and, and are still considering that you would help them move closer to you because you are the one who draws people close to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for drawing me. Thank you for drawing so many of us here mm-hmm. close to you. We love you. And we just worship you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.